So as you know, at least I hope you know, uh, the theme of this retreat is equanimity. Sometimes I feel like we should do a, the check like they do when you get on a plane. You know, this, this retreat is going to equanimity. If that's what you want, stay on board. If you want agitation and restlessness, go down to the video arcade in town and that's what you'll find there. And when Kamala asked me to do this retreat, now it's, well, probably well over a year ago, more. We have to, our lives get planned in very long time frames. We're already talking about 2018 and 19. Um, I immediately said yes, mainly because it was Kamala asking. And she's such a dear friend and colleague, and I'm always feel, I always feel I'm blessed if I'm able to spend time with her, and particularly to teach with her because she's so wise and her practice is so deep that I always learn when I spend time with Kamala. So mainly because of that, but also very much because of the theme of equanimity, because it's been so valuable to me in my practice, in my life. I already had a tendency in this direction. I'm Australian, if you ca- in case you pick up a, a weird kind of inflection, that's what that is. I left in 1980 and haven't been back to live there since, so spent more time out of the country than in, but it's still de- very much part of who I am. And so Australians have a bit of a, ten- a reputation, right? We were stiff, we're, we're definitely, I'm from a British kind of stock, English stock, stiff upper lip kind of thing. Um, so that was there, but also a lot of reactivity, confusion, and, and just a, um, a really not knowing how to live a life that was connected and wise and loving. And the Dharma really showed me that that was possible. And equanimity and deepening in that capacity was a big part of that growth. So I've always valued it as a quality of mind and heart. But also with this overview or heading of equanimity, we could teach on anything and everything because equanimity is woven through the Buddha's teachings and practices. Any practice that you do to any depth, equanimity has to deepen to allow that practice to fully unfold. So it's central to what we do here at Spirit Rock, even if we don't clearly highlight it as we're doing on this retreat. And so for our mindfulness practice that we started with today, um, connecting to the present moment, just to be able to not be lost in past and future, not to be caught in reactivity and emotional storms and regrets and fears. There has to be some um, connecting to equanimity. And of course, those things do happen. We do get caught in reactivity and emotional storms and hopes and fears. But if we can bring mindfulness to those experiences, something shifts. Our relationship to them shifts. And at the heart of that, as we start to understand what's happening, is equanimity. Because we're accepting that this is so right now, that this is our experience. And then mindfulness is a tool that we use to deepen the main practice that we teach here, which is vipassana, or insight meditation, 
where we steady our attention to a closer and closer attunement to the nature of reality, this reality, the reality that's happening here and now in this mind and body, to do that steady attuning to the level of detail that we need um, in that practice, again, some equanimity, some balance of mind is necessary. And then it's woven into so many of the other lists and teachings of the Buddha. We'll talk about some on this retreat. One um, very important list is called the Paramis, or the Ten Perfections. These are qualities of mind and heart that it said that the Buddha perfected over all of his lifetimes leading up to the lifetime where he became awakened, and that we as practitioners are encouraged to also perfect through training and practice. And they're um, qualities like generosity and ethical conduct. Metta is a parami. Um, renunciation. Equanimity is the last of the paramis. They're all usually given as a list, even though they're not completely linear. It's not like you started the first and only get to the next as you go along. They're really more like a hologram or uh, a circ- have a circular nature. And Sylvia Borstein, uh, one of my dear friends and colleagues, has written a whole book on them where she says they're, they're, they're reflections of each other. As you practice one, the others get enlivened and deepened. And so we can see them like that. But I was just listening to a talk by Joseph Goldstein where he quoted uh, another teacher saying, of all the ten paramis, patience and equanimity are the key ones. If you deepen in those, the others will unfold. So again, equanimity being highlighted as central. And then, of course, it's one of the Brahma-viharas. Kamala's already spoken about these divine abiding, sublime emotions, kind of the, 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 the highest quality or expressions of the emotional life that we as human beings can experience, these qualities of loving kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity. Again, it's last on that list. And last for a reason, um, because it has its challenges as we turn the mind towards it. But also it's woven through the other three. It needs to be there for the metta to unfold, for the compassion to turn to suffering, for us to stay balanced when we're um, experiencing a lot of joy and uh, gladness. So woven through. So what I wanted to talk about was how equanimity is woven through the two practices that we've been doing today, the mindfulness practice and the beginning this afternoon with the, the metta practice. Um, again, quoting Sylvia Borstein, she says her constant frame for her practice or question for her practice is, what will help me have a clear mind and an open heart? And then she responds to support those two qualities. These practices are what does that. Mindfulness infused with equanimity, there's the clear mind. Metta is the expression of the open heart. So these practices really do serve us to meet our experience, to meet life with kindness and with wisdom. So important. So we wanted to start the retreat with this basic practice of mindfulness. Some of you have practiced on many retreats for many years, others of you more new to practice. But for all of us, we needed to arrive. 
just get here today at Spirit Rock, Monday, whatever day it is, April something, um, bring mind and body together. Often we have this relationship to the body that is just kind of this vehicle to carry the head around, right? We're just a thinking being. It's all happening up here and the body's just the locomotion engine. Or we have a relationship with the body that we're obsessed with it, that we're always thinking about it, worrying about it. We can be uh, prideful of it or extremely judgmental of it. Or we can ignore the body, just not even realize that we have one until it complains about something. We want to bring all of us together. This sense of connecting and aligning mind and body, so helpful, so important. So the body is the first foundation of mindfulness. Whole series of teachings on how to develop mindfulness and insight body is the first one. So important. Why? Because it's here. It's knowable. You know, we can talk about mindfulness of the breath. The breath hopefully is always here, but it goes through its phases, right? In and out, softening, being very discreet. It ends. Um, The mind is very unreliable, hard to be mindful of, but the body has this solidity to it. I mean, in a way, there's ways in which it's not very solid. We can talk about that too. But we start with just this connecting and arriving with the body. And then we include the breath. This life of the body is the breath coming and going. And it's beautiful because it adds this changing nature. It's somewhat in our control, but it also has this life of its own, always coming and going, keeping us alive nuances of the breath, the, 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 the beauty of the breath. So this is the basis of our practice, to bring these two together, breath, body, and then the mind attending. This is what we do in our practice. And we learn to steady the attention. We use the breath and the body to land in the present moment, steadying the attention. So this is what we asked you to do today. As I said last night, or this morning, I forget when, um, not our usual way of spending a day, right? To sit and walk time after time, uh, what do they say, rinse and repeat. Um, <laughs> sit, walk, sit walk, again and again. And to do that in silence with 60 other people, navigating the dining room, doing the dance of the, the coat room, of putting your shoes away, without the usual excuse me and may I and thank you and please. It's a little unusual to do this. But as I think I also already said, the silence is sometimes becomes the most appreciated gift of a retreat like that, like this. Just being able to drop the busyness of interactions, of our social uh, niceties, and attend to ourselves in this very um, heartfelt way. The silence really supports that. Because most of us uh, are so connected these days. I mean, it's amazing. It seems like, maybe for my generation, only the last five years or so, that everyone has a cell phone and everyone is checking it all the time. I mean, people that I don't expect, uh, my... 
I went to Burma last year with a friend who goes regularly, and she says, oh yeah, all the sayadars have, have cell phones. She said, during a Dharma talk, if it rings, they'll pick it up, they'll answer it, and then they'll put it down. It's just like, I mean, in Burma, two years ago, they didn't have access to the internet, and now everyone has a cell phone. And they answer it and check it, whatever they're doing. It's kind of mind-boggling what's happening there. And I'm sure you have some version of that that didn't used to be in your life and now is like permanently embedded in some part of your being, the little beeps and dings that, that we, we're like Pavlov's dogs, you know, responding to. Um, and it, it's just uh, an obsession. I read uh, the Kaiser Family Foundation. Kaiser is our big healthcare system here in California. They said they did a study where they found that 8 to 18-year-olds spend an average of seven and a half hours using entertainment media every day. And a lot of that's on a phone, just watching and tapping and typing and connecting and texting. So we're not doing that here, right? You're not, right? <laughs> really, it's such a blessing to turn it off to put it aside at this month-long retreat we just did. We had a cell phone renunciation ceremony. We had a beautiful basket with a cloth. We had people come up and wrap their phones up and place them in, and we rang the bell. Just like letting go of that. I like to collect cartoons uh, um, that relate to our practice. So I have my whole... uh, There's not that many, but it's getting more, you know, as meditation is getting more... uh, commonplace um, cartoons around meditation. I mentioned one last night about the mindfulness. What do we want mindfulness? What do we want now? There's another whole subsection called the guru, I call the guru cartoons. And they're always, even though many different cartoonists do them, they all have this theme, right? The mountaintop that's usually a triangle with a wiggly line, that's snow. And the guru always has a, he's always a man, so far as I've seen, a beard, a loincloth of some kind. And the seeker is always sort of clambering up, sort of looking over the edge, knapsack on the back, you know, obviously asked the question. So the latest one I saw, that scenario, the seeker's there, and the guru's got his hand up like that. No, it would be like, which way would it be? He's checking his phone. He's like, well, held on. <laughs> so even the gurus now are doing it. So, endless. Here we have a different opportunity, you know, to turn off those devices. As you turn off, tune in. Well, not so much the take drugs and drop out, but tune in to what's happening. Be with our experience directly. Sounds wonderful, doesn't it? You're here because you think it does. It's not easy, right? And it's often a little scary to see what's going on in here. You put all that stuff in there, all the movies and the images and the news and the data that you've accumulated, it's all in there somewhere. And we slow down and turn, turn down the input, reduce the input, and it starts to regurgitate, right? All of that stuff. And what we sometimes see is our minds are kind of scary and they have no shame. They will do anything to distract us, to obsess us, to challenge us, to worry us, to bring up fear or dread or shame or guilt. 
but we're doing it to ourselves. I saw this great quote from Theodore Roosevelt. He said, if you could kick the person in the pants responsible for most of your trouble, you wouldn't sit down for a month. (laughs) We do it to ourselves most of the time. And so here it's really like, mind, meet yourself. See what this mind is like. Make friends with your mind. See that the mind can actually become an ally. It's not something we need to kind of corral and keep at arm's length or repress, but actually explore and enjoy this mind. So we start by watching the mind, including what's happening in the mind. Meditation is not about not thinking, but it is about developing a different relationship to thought where the thoughts don't run the show, the thoughts aren't in charge. So this is what we do over and over again, right? We have the intention to be present, these simple instructions, in, out, gone, right? In, gone. In, out, in, gone. Just a few breaths, right? And the mind goes off. Um, Our practice is to be okay with that to notice when it happens. And if we're on a longer mindfulness retreat, we do a lot of instructions about working with the mind and mindfulness of thoughts. Um, And we'll touch on those because thoughts will still happen. But it's really developing this different relationship to our thinking mind, that we don't have to follow every thought, that just because we think it doesn't mean it's true, and that we can actually say, not now, and come back to just breath and body. But we have to prefer that to the distraction. Most of us have trained our minds to prefer being distracted, to prefer being superficial and lightning fast and a little bit of this and a little bit of that and click here and click there and what about this color and no, you know, check that thing out, that might be better. We've trained our mind to do that. So it's understandable it does it when we sit down to meditate. We have to start shifting our frame of reference, shifting our attitude. But it's possible. Mindfulness is a powerful tool. It's an amazingly powerful tool. And as I think I already said, it's becoming so much more mainstream. Every time I say that, my really mainstream friends go, Sally, you're not really, you know, in the mainstream yet. (laughs) Kind of knocking at the edges, but to me it seems that. I mean, it's mindfulness in everything now, right? It's mindfulness in education, in the healthcare system, all the big tech companies are doing it. It's in prisons. Uh, uh, Someone, uh, one of my students was teaching mindfulness in Congress the other day to a group of uh, Congress people. It's everywhere. Um, all of the you know, media is talking about it. Huff Post, that uh, source of all things good and true. <laughs> the five most important things we learned about mindfulness this year. Scientists uncovered even more benefits of mindfulness. So this was from the end of last year. 2014 may have been the year of the mindful revolution, but 2015 proved that mindfulness is here to stay. 
The more we learn about mindfulness, the cultivation of a focused awareness on the present moment, the more health and well-being benefits we discover. So these are the, some of the things. We figured out how mindfulness intru- improves health. Number of physical and mental health benefits like reduced risk of cancer, heart disease and depression, and turn down biological stress factors, these telomeres that get um, uh, stressed or weakened by stress. Meditation keeps the brain young. doesn't just make you feel good, it can actually keep you young. I can see this is our next press release. It's like all here. Effective treatment for insomnia. Can't sleep? Meditate. Mindfulness relieves pain more effectively than a placebo. Mindfulness is good for kids too. I mean, I'm, I joke a little because it, it seems like it's the, be- the panacea to everything, right? But it is a powerful tool if applied correctly, like any tool. So that's a little bit what I want to talk about tonight. What is mindfulness? So we'll start right there. I've been talking about it. You've been practicing it. What is mindfulness? Not a rhetorical question. What? Any responses? Paying attention. Paying attention. Very good. Anything to add to paying attention? Paying attention to the moment. Without judgment. judgment. Mm -hmm. Very good. Can a dog do that? Does a dog do that? So what are we talking about that's hopefully something more than our best friend, a dog, can do? They're in the moment, right? They're very non-judgmental. They're paying attention. So what the Buddha is talking about is something more than just that. It is the basis of it, so your answers were correct. But we have to get a little above dog mind. Great place to start. Love dogs. So this question about what mindfulness is should be simple, right? Where Buddhist meditation, mindfulness is so key. Different schools of Buddhism have different understandings of what mindfulness is, and even within our tradition, we have debates about what mindfulness is. So just to let you know that it's so broad and complex that there's no one easy answer. The Pali word we're translating is sati, and it has its root in memory or remembering. So we always say, you know, it's easy to be mindful, it's just hard to remember to be mindful, or the key is to remember to be mindful. Once you remember, it's easy, right? You can become mindful. We have to remember to be mindful. So the essence is being in the moment, as you said, this inner knowing and an outer connectedness. So the simple definition is just knowing what's happening. That's a pretty good working definition of mindfulness. But we add another level when we practice vipassana, insight meditation, insight seeing clearly. We add a little knowing that you know, knowing that you're mindful. There's some kind of reflectiveness happening that shifts it from dog mind. Dogs, I don't think, know they're paying attention and being mind. They're so in the moment. And it adds some wisdom. So let's just do a little exercise. Just Touch your hands lightly together like this. And I'm not asking you to bow to me. I'm just using that as a practice. Can you feel your hands touching? Mm 
It's pretty easy, right? Doesn't take much effort. But what you're doing is important. You're directing your attention to those sensations. That's how you know those sensations. That's a big part. It's the conscious directing of attention. You can leave your hands up like that if you want to keep bowing, put them down. And now let me ask you, most of you have your eyes open and you're seeing. Were you mindful that you were seeing? Or were you just seeing? You were just seeing, right? Just A lot of it was in the listening, the uh, uh, cognizing of what was being said. Now that I mention being mindful of seeing, can you see what little, diff- little shift that is? It's subtle, right? But there's a difference. Ah, oh, seeing is happening. I'm actually knowing this experience. And we don't say those words consciously, but that's getting more to the heart of what um, the Buddha was pointing to. He talked about samasati, wise or right mindfulness. This word sama, samasati is one of the uh, eightfold path, uh, factors of the eightfold path, and each one is pre- preceded by this word sama, which means right or wise or whole or perfected or onward leading, meaning it leads to the deepening of the path, deepening of, of the Dhamma. And so what we start to see, the function of mindfulness actually is, is to increase wholesome states of mind and decrease unwholesome ones. Because as we see clearly, it's like picking up a hot coal. No one has to say, drop that, you'll burn yourself. You drop it. Mindfulness, when it sees clearly, with this non-judgmental equanimity, sees when the mind is heading towards more suffering. And when the mindfulness is there, it can let go a little. I have this different relationship. It also leads to insight. I've already uh, mentioned that a little bit. This seeing clearly, vipassana. And this insight can be on a personal level where we really um, start to understand our conditioning, unwind what we call karmic knots, whether they're very personal and intimate or even generational, not so personal. Um, There's a real unwinding and and freeing that happens just on a personal level. But it also happens very powerfully on what we call the impersonal level. That's universal, not individual, where we start to see the very nature of reality. And one of the hallmarks of that is what the Buddha called the three characteristics, that, that experience is marked by these characteristics, that every conditioned thing has these characteristics of being impermanent, anicca, always changing, unsatisfactory, dukkha, unreliable, and anatta, meaning there's nothing solid at the core. We're not in control in the way we think we are. This is what mindfulness through insight leads to, the seeing clearly and understanding of these three characteristics. So that's samasati, It begins with this um, simple mindfulness or bare knowing, but it keeps deepening as we pay attention. And it's why we pay attention. John Kabat-Zinn, who many people uh, know, you know, started um, mindfulness-based stress reduction. He is a student of 
he's been on retreats as a student of mine. Now I don't, you know, he's just happened to be on a retreat I was teaching, but started his practice at Insight Meditation Society that Kamala and I both mentioned, where we both taught a lot. So he's, his MBSR is based in this tradition of, of practice, of meditation. Um, I hear it said these days, oh yeah, John Kabat-Zinn, he invented mindfulness. It's like, I know he would never say that because he knows where his teachings come from. But anyway, he has a great definition of mindfulness. He says, mindfulness means paying attention in a particular way on purpose in the present moment non-judgmentally. That's the fundamental sort of starting point. And the non-judgmental part is the functioning of equanimity. That's what allows us to keep coming back, not getting kind of pushed off by our reactivity and our hopes and fears. As we stay present, the non-judgmental part deepens into equanimity. Because equanimity, what it allows us to do is to stay connected through the ups and downs, stay balanced, be non-judgmental. Out of that, out of that continuing practice, deepening of that practice, we can um, develop what we often uh, frame as a kind, interested, relaxed attention. These are the qualities we want to bring to our mindfulness practice, to whatever is happening. Kind, interested, relaxed attention. What do we pay attention to? Everything. It's called insight meditation. We, we're asked to see clearly as possible into everything, into every aspect of our experience. And what we start to see is that we usually don't see clearly. We're usually blinded by our habits, by our preferences, our projections, our ideas, our preconceptions about everything. We make assumptions about others, about other people, by the way they dress or move or speak, the color of their skin, their sexual identification, or we make assumptions about gender and things like that. We do that all the time. We make assumptions about ourselves, about our own capacities, our own identities, our sense of limitation or potential, often very distorted through our conditioning, through our lack of self-acceptance. The Talmud, that uh, book of Jewish wisdom, says, we don't see things as they are, we see things as we are. Meaning we're always seeing through these projections, seeing through these distortions, you could almost say, um, of filters of the mind. So this practice is to learn to see as clearly and directly as we can, what's happening, what's happening now, at all of the six sense doors, mind, body, heart. And to do that, to learn to understand ourselves in the world, this is our place of learning. The Buddha said something like, in this fathom-long body is the world, and the ending of the world, meaning the ending of our suffering. This is our place of exploration. I love sharing this poem because it's so appropriate to our practice of mindfulness. It's by Mary Oliver, and it is called Mindful. Every day I see or hear something that more or less kills me with delight. 
that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. It was what I was born for, to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world, to instruct myself over and over in joy and acclamation. Nor am I talking about the exceptional, the fearful, the dreadful, the very extravagant, but of the ordinary, the common, the very drab, the daily presentations. Oh, good scholar, I say to myself, how can you help but grow wise with such teachings as these, the untrimmable light of the world, the ocean shine, the prayers that are made out of grass? So she's talking, as she does always so beautifully, about this immediacy of connection, I lose myself inside this soft world and instruct myself over and over. Not about, you know, the big fantastic things, but the daily presentations, the simplicity of presence. Grow wise with these teachings. This is what we do here. Turning again and again. This inner knowing that uh, um, helps us open and learn from everything as it presents itself. Thich Nhat Hanh, that great teacher of mindfulness, a Vietnamese teacher, um, has a whole book called The Miracle of Mindfulness. And in it he says, Mindfulness is the miracle by which we master and restore ourselves. It is the miracle which can call back in a flash our dispersed mind and restore it to wholeness so that we can live each minute of life. Thus mindfulness is at the same time a means and an end, the seed and the fruit. Mindfulness itself is the life of awareness. Mindfulness allows us to live. So it's really not something that kind of we do as a, I don't know, a job or something. It becomes a way we can live and respond to life out of this sense of connection, out of this sense of intimacy with all of life, inner life, outer life. This is what mindfulness can do then we can take that quality of mindfulness of this non-judgmental, interested, kind attention and actually deliberately deepen and develop the quality of kindness. Because mindfulness has a natural warmth to it. As we become intimate with experience, as we get closer to it, you can perhaps taste that, the non-judgmental part. That's the acceptance. Acceptance is the beginning of kindness, of friendliness. And so we can deliberately cultivate that through the metta practice. And even though it's quite a different practice, you were introduced to it today, some of you may be familiar with it, it has as its basis mindfulness, knowing what's happening, connecting to what's happening, remembering to say the phrases. And we wanted to begin with metta because, as we said, it is the first traditionally of the Brahma Viharas. It's the foundation practice because it so easily turns to, to the others. When metta, this sense of warmth or friendliness or kindness, meets suffering, it becomes compassion. The flavor is compassion. When it, it meets uh, someone who's really having a good time, a lot of success and happiness, it just expands into joy. 
and mudita. And then equanimity has to be there, woven through all of the other Brahma-viharas. Otherwise, they would fall into what's known as their near and far enemies. And Kamala will talk more about that uh, in another night. So we wanted to begin our practice of the final Brahma-vihara of equanimity with the first Brahma-vihara of metta and kind of warm up the space a little. Because even though equanimity, sometimes talked about as cool or neutral, it has to be connected. If it's disconnected, it's not true equanimity. It's the, it's an enemy of equanimity. It's a near enemy of apathy or disconnection. So we wanted to warm up the space um, to do some metta. And each of the Brahma-viharas has a practice associated with it, these repetition of different phrases that are appropriate. So we'll do that with the metta, and then we'll turn in a day or so to the equanimity. But metta, the basic attitude, is saying yes. Metta is acceptance. Metta is accepting ourselves, our experience, our bodies, our minds, our hearts, our outer experience, the outer world, you, she, he, it, all of the beings, they, accepting it all. This is the heart of metta. It's so powerful, all beings without exception. And when we deepen in mindfulness, truly, cultivate that quality of mindfulness. It's said that a moment of pure mindfulness is free of what we call the kalesas, the torments or the poisons of the mind of greed, aversion, and delusion. A mind that's free in that way is naturally calm and connected, naturally has that steadiness and ability to be present with whatever's happening. And so we take that possibility, that cultivation, and turn it deliberately towards kindness. Now kindness may seem, I don't know, it's kind of a simple word in a way. It's not just, they were kind, that was very kind. It's a powerful attribute. It's a powerful quality. I read this recently um, from Roger Ebert, who was a film critic, but really a very influential film critic. But what I've learned is he was actually a really wise person. This is what he says. Kindness covers all my political beliefs. No need to spell them out. I believe that if, at the end, according to our abilities, we have done something to make others a little happier and something to make ourselves a little happier, that is about the best we can do. To make others less happy is a crime. To make ourselves unhappy is where all crime starts. We must try to contribute joy to the world. That is true no matter what our problems, our health, our circumstances. We must try. I didn't always know this, and I'm happy I lived long enough to find it out. You're here because you've lived long enough to find that out. That cultivating joy and compassion and wisdom and kindness is about the best thing that you can do. And so we're here to practice that starting with the metta, the loving-kindness. 
So we hear this word metta, loving kindness, and can have a lot of questions. What is that? What am I meant to be feeling? What does it look like? Do I have enough? Is my metta the right kind? Is this what it should be? Should it be bigger? Should it be this? Should it be that? That's why I like to actually just call it kindness. Some other um, translations are benevolence or goodwill or friendliness. As soon as we add that word love, it can be really uh, triggering. Um, Ajahn Sumedho, great, uh, he's an American man, um, started a very uh, influential, successful series of monasteries based in England. Uh, He said, metta is often translated as love. This word has many meanings for us. We usually connect it with liking. I love pizza means I like to eat it, not I have metta for it. (laughs) With metta you can love, but you don't have to like. Metta includes the opposite of liking, not liking. Liking depends on circumstances or mood. Metta doesn't. When metta is idealistic, it doesn't work. I should love my mother. Or we can send to all beings but can't feel for the people we know because we feel we always have to like them and sometimes we don't. This kind of metta can't include difficulties. When a child is misbehaving, the conditions for liking aren't there, but unconditional love can still be. Liking requires certain conditions. Metta doesn't. We should use ideals like guiding stars to be able to acknowledge current realities may not be ideal. Current realities may not be ideal, but we can still incline towards metta. Current realities are often not ideal, right? Inner world, outer world, the body aching, the mind confused or tired, often not ideal. And it can be easy to be overwhelmed by the negativity in the world. Conditions not ideal. See all the hatred and the prejudice and the cruelty and the racism and the injustice that just seems everywhere anytime we open up to the news. But we can also perhaps start to see how often those actions come out of fear and self-centeredness, reactivity, trauma. This is so uh, much a part of what happens. And that these practices allow us to stay steady and connected, even in the face of these difficulties. I read an article a little while ago about Angelina Jolie um, in Parade Magazine, which is one of my few sources of those kind of uh, interviews. Um, and it's amazing how often, you know, uh, movie stars are held up for our role models. You know, you read things like, uh, you know, I, I, I've learned so much about life, and this is some 18-year-old actress, or I discovered the love of my life, and they're going on about, you know, love and the, or what they know, and then a year later you find they've divorced. You know, it's just sort of sh- shameful that... Wise people aren't the ones that we read about, but these, you know, and I'm not, they're they're people, they're just human beings, but there's this adulation of them. But Angelina Jolie, I don't know anything about her literally as a person, but she's really chosen to do something with her fame and her wealth that's quite remarkable. So this story, this article, uh, she talks about filming uh, in Cambodia, 
And she said, one of the first refugee camps I went to had 400,000 people in it. It was a sea of human misery. In Sierra Leone, I saw tens of thousands with their arms and legs cut off by rebels, orphan children. I felt completely overwhelmed. I cried constantly. I felt guilty for everything I had. Then I realized I wasn't doing these people any favors by crying. I kept getting angry at the injustice until I couldn't think straight, and I took a deep breath and focused on how I could help. I discovered that I was useful as a person. When I met suffering people, it put my life into perspective. It slammed me into a bigger picture of the world. But the key is there she realized she wasn't doing them any favors by crying, by wailing and saying this was unfair. It was when she took a deep breath and said, how can I meet this? What can I do? And that she could do something with her fame and her wealth. That's equanimity suffused with the other Brahma-viharas, metta, compassion, and joy. And so this, even though it may not be as dramatic as what her experience are, all of us have our own sea of miseries that we are faced with in our own lives, our family struggles, work situations, our health issues, economic challenges, injustices and cruelty. All Again, just open a newspaper, turn, open the internet to any news source. How do we face that? How do we stay open? One of the things we often forget is there are countless acts of kindness every day that don't get reported on. That we are all actually living in a sea of kindness. Certainly here at Spirit Rock, the way we're held and supported, someone's cooking for you, someone's washing your dishes, you know, someone else is cleaning the bathroom, or maybe you're cleaning it for someone else, but still, you're, you're being supported so much here. All of the people that supported you to come here, your work colleagues that took up some slack, or family members that are taking care of things at home, whatever it is, that there are also internet sites devoted to good news and kindness and, and uplifting stories, to cuteness, to just kind of warm the heart a little, the cuteness factor. We need that to balance the negativity. But we can also trust that our heart too has that capacity to meet what is true in our own hearts and minds and in the world out there. A little while ago I saw that great movie on uh, Nelson Mandela's life, Long Walk to Freedom, just full of inspiring moments, but one I clearly remember was after he'd been released and the, the white politicians were in a room talking to him about what this handover of power might look like after they'd won the elections. And they were white politicians really afraid of the revenge that would understandably um, be uh, evoked uh, by the people who'd been oppressed for so long. And Nelson Mandela said, We've seen what fear and hatred has done to you, how it makes you live and act, and we don't want that for ourselves. What a huge moment to just say we see that, even though so much cruelty, injustice, death and torture, 
We don't want that for ourselves. We choose forgiveness. We choose kindness. The challenge is, of course, we don't just have to do that once, right? We have to keep doing it because there's always something new, right? Something more, something, another difficulty. But what we start to know and trust is this heart can be resilient. When it's infused with metta, where there's this basic attitude of acceptance and kindness and it has the stability of equanimity, we can meet life. We can meet experiences. Um, We can connect to even the difficulties, to the suffering, then that's compassion. But we train and know that, yes, we'll get out of balance. This is not about some kind of unwavering tightrope that we're walking. We will move in and out of, of being in metta and being contracted, of being balanced and being out of balance. But what we start to trust is that we can find our way back to balance, that this heart is resilient It can be open and attuned. It can learn how to protect itself. Again, this is not just about this kind of um, choiceless, just being open to everything. No, there's wisdom in this as well. But we start to know and trust this foundational attitude of kindness and start to really see what a shift that can make for us. And so the metta can be this response out of interconnectedness and empathy, out of actually feeling with what's happening, not holding it at arm's length, putting barriers up and feeling safe behind our wall. Martin Luther King said, we must accept finite disappointment, but never lose infinite hope. Forgiveness is not an occasional act. It is a permanent attitude. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And I don't know if he knew the words of the Buddha, but the Buddha said something almost identical. The Buddha said, Hatreds never cease through hatred in this world. Through love alone they cease. This is an ancient and eternal law. We start to see that for ourselves, that love, kindness, metta can help us meet life and meet experience. Metta is powerful, just like mindfulness is powerful. Metta is powerful and optimistic. It's actually an uplifting practice. Again, Maya Angelou, love recognizes no barriers. It jumps hurdles, leaps fences, penetrates walls to arrive at its destination full of hope. I love that. Uh, uh, I teach meta retreats every year, so I love talking about it and teaching it. Just seeing how life-transforming it has been for me and for the people on these retreats. And on one retreat, a yogi wrote a note. She said, instead of applying for Medicare, we all need to apply for Metacare. And we need to be practicing for universal coverage of kindness, pervading all quarters, this is one of the chants we'll do, without discrimination or conditions, no preconditions for the acceptance into meta-care. Metta is an optimistic practice. People can be happy. 
I can be happy. You can be happy. Not a la-di-da kind of happiness, but a really grounded kind of happiness. That grounded kind of happiness comes when metta and equanimity come together, when we can accept our experience as it is right now without more of this and less of that, trust that we can be open to whatever comes, that we don't need to be afraid. As Sharon Salzberg says, one of our teachers, she was just here teaching on metta and equanimity yesterday. Equanimity endows loving kindness, compassion, and sympathetic joy with their sense of patience, that ability to be constant and to endure, even if the love Sympathy or rejoicing is unreturned, even through all of the ups and downs. The other Brahma-viharas owe their boundless nature to equanimity, that ability to embrace all beings impartially. So this is the possibility of these practices of mindfulness and metta and equanimity, the willingness to turn to what's difficult, to come to know and accept ourselves, to make friends with our minds, to trust that we can open to what is and meet it with kindness, balance, and wisdom, and discover the freedom that's possible on this path of practice from a balanced mind and an open heart. So at the end of our teachings before we begin to move to the next thing. We just let the words settle into silence for a few minutes. If you want to shift posture, you can. You don't need to, but just let the words settle. Trust that you'll take in whatever was helpful for you. If anything wasn't helpful, not useful, you've already forgotten it, just let it go. It's all recorded. That's the other good thing. So... Just take this, these few moments just to sit, breathe, let everything settle. Feeling the open heart, receptive, tender, alive. The crickets chirping cool night air. Thank you for your attention. I realized I said crickets chirping. There were frogs croaking. <laughs> Completely different. Someone turned them off. <laughs> Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.